Today on Podcast by the Bay, an exclusive showcase interview with current city councilman of Foster City, Gary Pollard. For me, what came out of this was transparency, as opposed to just go through, go through the planning commission, no zoning change, and things just pop up. I think here it showed that the council wanted to engage potential developers and engage the residents and make the residents take part of this city. The city doesn't belong to the five council members. His take to use reserve funds on the Foster City bond measure for the levy. So there's money earmarked for various in various funds. All of that money belongs to the residents. So whether we end up spending it where it's allocated, we can always pull it and spend it somewhere else. But we have to make sure when we do that, are we pulling it for the right reason? Also discussing the Saris Regis project. It's now going through the process of going to the Planning Commission. Planning Commission is going to look at and evaluate all the EIR reports, the traffic, the water, the fire, police, all of those things. They're going to make a recommendation at some time to council, we assume, have no idea, that says we either think it's a good project and we, you should rezone it, or we think it's a horrible project and do what you want with it. All coming up on part one of our exclusive interview with Gary Pollard. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com slash podcast by the bay. And in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. Liberty Realty. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, another podcast by the Bay. All right, welcome to another edition of Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre, and I'm filling in for Patrick as well because he's a little bit under the weather. But um, we're happy to present on this show Gary Pollard, one of our Foster City City Council members, and really uh, understand from his perspective a lot of the issues that's happening in Foster City. And one of the things I think this interview highlights is actually the thought process that they have to go through as city councilmen. And I think this is a very enlightening uh, interview uh, for people who have never uh, understand the different dynamics and the different pros and cons of all the issues and how to look at it from different sides. I think there's a lot of information, um, a lot of assumptions that are going around about why things are happening and how things are, why this is happening with this issue and that issue. And I think um, one of the things an interview like this really showcases is explaining what the city council member actually seeing from their perspective and how they're presented and how they actually have to make decisions. So check it out. This is a this is a great two-part series of the interview because there's some really good information here. And uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, please contact us, podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And um, if you have any feedback, questions, um, also... Uh, go to our website, podcastbythebay.com. That's www.podcastbythebay.com. All right, here we go. Gary Pollard, check it out. All right, have a good day. Bye.
Hello there. This is Patrick with Podcast by the Bay. It's November 21st, um, 2017. Okay, um, I have the honor of being able to uh, speak with Gary Pollard. He's lived in Foster City for over 29 years. Um, he's been active quite a bit in other areas besides City Council. And I'm going to introduce Gary Pollard. Gary Pollard, again, has served on City Council for how long, Gary? I'm just completing my fourth year. Gary, aside from sitting on the <clears throat> city council, you sit on various committees. Could you tell the audience what committees you sit on? Yes, be happy to. I sit currently on the audit committee as the liaison for the uh, council. I am on the JPA for the San Mateo County Libraries. I'm on the JPA for Peninsula Clean Energy. I sit on um, the state of California, the League of California Cities. I am on the Transportation, Communication, Public Works uh, Committee for the state. Um, I think that's pretty. And then I'm on a subcommittee for uh, transportation with current Vice Mayor Sam Hindi. I'm on the, um, um, I can't think of the name for a second, but with Councilmember Perez, I am on the communications subcommittee where we're dealing with uh, all forms of communication, new website that's coming out. So that's just a crack in there of what I do. Well, Gary, I've had an opportunity to watch you over the years and appreciated your leadership and stuff. Um, I'm going to kind of regress a little bit because um, as we all are concerned in Foster City with the uh, overcrowdedness and the build out, um, if you can recall a city council meeting in 2014 uh, with the Edgewater Shopping Center and just how you dealt with it. Um, as you know, we had a uh, overwhelming amount of people that were in the audience that were pretty much opposed to uh, developing uh, Edgewater Shopping Center to housing. So, Patrick, let me, let me address the first point you made. I'm not sure if Foster City is quote-unquote built out. I think there is, um, we're at a point where there's not a lot of available land left that we might want to turn into future development, um, but I'm not necessarily sure that we're built out, but we're getting to that point where uh, we only have 4.4 square miles and we can't go any other way around that. But um, but to your point on Edgewater Shopping Center, right before they came to us, we at council developed a gatekeeper um, idea whereby, copied other cities, whereby we wanted to help potential developers not go down a path of spending a lot of money ending up going nowhere. It's very expensive to develop plans. As you know, you're in the real estate business. And so we felt that the gatekeeper, they could come to council, no vote, no action, no anything, where they could present an idea. They don't have to have plans. They don't have to have uh, exact square footage, but kind of a concept. And it would give the residents an opportunity to listen, maybe chime in, send emails, be, be part of the, the whole process. So with that, Edgewater came forward with a, a rather large plan to redevelop that entire shopping center, mainly a few retail stores in there and housing and a parking structure and so forth. Um, so the process was good by they came by. The thing that we all learned, at least I learned, was how much housing or no more housing really is a big deal to the residents in Foster City. And I caution when I say that because not everybody says no more housing, but the vocal tone in the city to this day is let's take a cautionary approach to more housing. Okay, that's it. <clears throat> that, yeah, that was kind of a, a quite a controversial thing. And 
for the uh, council, and I think it, it was quite overwhelming to see that hall, the city council chambers, to have people outside. And I think the message became clear, at least in 2014, that the public, so to speak, or the people that lived or were concerned in Foster City just didn't want to see the overcrowdedness or the tight quarters in the Edgewater Shopping Center. But what I, but what I, I think, for me, what came out of this was transparency. As opposed to just go through go through the planning commission, no zoning change, and things just pop up. I think here it showed that the council wanted to engage potential developers and engage the residents and make the residents take part of this city. This city doesn't belong to the five council members. It's all of ours uh, equally. So I think it's important to hear from the residents. Not every resident's going to be happy with every decision that's made, whether it's housing, whether it's traffic, whether it's schools, whether it's you know, painting the lines on a street, but we're engaging the residents, and I think that's a positive at the end of the day. No, I appreciate that. I, I, I think the process worked well, and you guys handled it well. I'm kind of anchoring a little bit uh, more concerned on the Edgewater Shopping Center. I know the council over the years have tried to work diligently uh, with the owner, the absentee owner there, on improving the... Uh, uh, the the deck and the dock and everything else. And how how are we how are we progressing on that? I I know there was a little bit move forward on his part to participate. Um, I'm I'm hearing outside that he's not as cooperative as as, uh, as we would like. I would I would say that it's a challenge. Uh, I think the owner probably is. Um, frustrated that they want to redevelop and the council didn't say no, didn't say yes, but the residents overwhelmingly were there. And I think the direction the council gave in that gatekeeper was, at least for me, listen to the residents. They, they're they not ready for more housing. I think it was a big plan. I think it was an overly large plan. Um, and I think the owner's frustrated with that. Now, their, their use permit, conditional use permit, they require certain elements. It's got to be upkept with the road, the parking lot, uh, the frontage, the, all of their signage, and the look and the feel. And safety has to be maintained. And I think we run into problems where we send letters and ask for them to maintain it for the safety, if nothing more, the safety for the people that go there. And I think they do to some part, and then time slips by, and they get... Um, Laxidagial, laxidagial, shall we say? But for the most part, it's a challenge. Uh, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think we're at a point where it's um, take it or leave it. But I certainly wish that they would come back and and engage in dialogue as to you know what works. What, what do you need from us? We we even offered a program the last couple of months uh, facade improvement to the businesses in Foster City, where we would do matching funds up to a certain amount. Um, and we hope centers like Edgewater or others will come forward because we're trying to work together to, to maintain a, a, a look and a feel that helps Foster City and the property values and, and, and so forth. But I'll tell you this, Patrick, that parking lot is full just about seven days a week. So there are some thriving businesses in there. Most of them are restaurants, but th that's a business. So there's good and bad with the way it looks hasn't deterred a lot of people from right. going there and doing uh, their business. Why don't we talk about the levy? Um, the levy is an exciting thing. Um, it's something that, uh, as we know, uh, FEMA has come down on us, and uh, we want to make sure that we're prepared. 
I wanted to hear your opinion on the levy, um, and I, I, if, I don't know if I'm using the correct buzzwords. I, I think the levy combination of design is called a hybrid, um, so to speak, um, where they're doing a combination of um, not just a wall, but a wall with some kind of sand or some kind of movement. Uh, it, give us, enlighten the audience here about what your take is on the levy and how the funding is, is going and um, which direction you think it's going to go. So, the FEMA has said to Foster City, you'll be in a flood zone based on this new mapping that they do. And they do the new mapping all over, not just Foster City, but areas surrounded by water all the time. And it's just a matter of when is your turn going to come up. Um, so with this new mapping, they gave us a period of time that we have to start demonstrating we're going to do something to shore up our levees and for fear of sea level rise and or storm surge, that 100-year storm type of thing. So in all the discussions when FEMA told us this, and engineers, and I'm not an engineer, so I'll be very clear on that, there were various designs of how to raise the levee up to a certain height. And then what was that height? There was the talk of just taking the levee and building more, I'll just use dirt for a simple word, but more rock and going higher and higher. Um, and as you go higher, you have to go wider, which meant that either is there enough to do that through the whole area that surrounds the bay for Foster City. So the other, area, the other idea that came into play was that To do anything, they would have to put these type of walls in before they could even put dirt or think of raising up. So it happened in Redwood City, and the engineer said in Redwood City they went, and since they had to put these, these, this wall in, this, this type of hybrid wall, to shore it up, they'll just go and go deeper and make it permanent. And that would suffice all the regulations, because as it goes into the ground and the height of it, you wouldn't need to take it out. You just let that be the levee and then build up just a little bit more of the levee to the to either the top of the wall or a little bit below that, that wall. So, you know, on average, the wall may have two feet showing. It might have six inches in some places. Some places it might just match the levee. It just depends on the depth of the wall in that area. Well, thanks for explaining that. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, funding? Um, okay, so, so, so the levee, what we've decided on is this wall. Okay, and... We think it's going to still have a good view for the people. Now, so the funding of it, the, the bond, the, the levy cost that we've been given by all the people is around $90 million. And this will allow us that in 2050, when you have to meet another regulation, we can add to this. So we're building something and paying for it now so that we can add to it later on, as opposed to God knows what the cost would be if you only built it to a certain level. So... 90 million is the number that's been floated around. Um, and as you know, the council voted to move forward with a bond measure, general obligation bond of $90 million. If so, if it passes to the voters, it will go out in June. Um, there's formulas out there, an average, I think, of $41 per thousand assessed value. It goes on your property tax, and it's a 30-year bond. And um, if, we vo if it gets voted down, then and FEMA puts us in a flood zone, then everybody that has a loan or wants to sell their home or do certain improvements, you would know this as well, you have to declare that you're in a flood zone um, and you have to buy flood insurance. And so um, it's an expensive investment, but this will bring us through for another 50 to 100 years. Um, but the caveat, water knows no boundaries. So if we build ours up, and we've been arguing this with FEMA and everyone else, the cities around us, 
eventually need to build up theirs as well because right now if water hits our levee if it's built up it's just going to find the lowest point and it's going to come in recently there uh, was a discussion with one of the council members i think at the council uh council Manipur, um on the funding of the levy um and if i kind of understand um, her interest or concern was is that the city um, has so much surplus money uh, that she felt that the city should maybe front 20 million of that 90 million dollar bond not necessarily put that bond um, that whole 90 million dollar bond onto the people what's your opinion on it Gary so surplus is a good word and, and the council is taking up in January, because we talked about it last night at our council meeting, in fact, I brought it up about agendizing to pay the bond down something. Catherine and I have been uh, somewhat on the same page about giving money back to the taxpayers. We have an abundance of money. Is it right to give some of it back? And if so, how do we give it back? So whether it's $10 million, $20 million, it's something that we're going to, at least the council is going to entertain discussion, and then we'll see how the five of us respond. I think that there's some tremendous value in going after a lower bond by using some of our money just on the debt ratio of 30 years. At 70 million is only going to cost us, I think last night we heard the numbers, I think it's 122 roughly million if you do a $70 million bond, total payments, versus a 90 million is 160. So there's a 35, $40 million differential. So there's... I'm not an accountant, but obviously there's 35, 40 million saving by investing, paying down 20 million of taxpayers' money. So I think those discussions are going to take place. Um, I don't I, I, until I see a hard cold numbers, and I have this discussion, and it's premature to do this now. But I do think there should be discussion of helping the residents, um, or if we're not going to, if the, if it takes three, if three people decide they don't want to help the residents. We should have a good plan of what we're going to do with all this money. And if it's for a rainy day, how much money does the city really have right now already set aside for various things? So I, I just don't want us to hoard the money, but I want to simply make sure that we identify to the taxpayers how we're going to use their money. Is it my understanding, uh, from what I've heard in discussion, that the city has approximately 117 million in surplus? Is that is that about right, or is that well, uh, some of that is counting enterprise fund, and the enterprise fund is water and wastewater. So that's user fees that are we can't touch by law. They they're for services of water wastewater. There's other monies that are put aside that we fund for CIP projects, whether it's parks whether it's infrastructure that needs to be repaired. You know, whenever you build something or buy something, our city's been great at stretching out 10 or 12 years, the life expectancy of something, 15 years, and every year putting money into funds so that when it's time to replace, the money's there. We've always been able to pay as we go. Um, so there's money earmarked for various, in various funds. All of that money belongs to the residents. So whether we end up spending it where it's allocated, we can always pull it and spend it somewhere else. But we have to make sure when we do that, are we pulling it for the right reason? Okay. Um, time here's an example, real quick. Two years ago, we needed a, a, our fire truck, the hook and ladder. I think it's a million-dollar vehicle, whatever the exact number was. When we bought the first one, 
we knew that the life expectancy was, let's say, 20 years. So to, if you knew it was going to be about a million or whatever it may be, you start putting money away. So when it was time to replace that, the city, by doing the right budgeting and preparing, was able to pay for that without hurting any other thing because the money was sitting there. That's excellent. That's good accounting. It's, it's well, well, it's it's good governance about taking care. Because if we didn't have the money, all of a sudden, does that affect when that... How much money are you going to pay to keep an old vehicle around and around and around? And you're, you, all of a sudden, you're just throwing good money after bad. So th- there's there's a lot of things that the residents not necessarily don't understand. They're not dealing with it day-to-day on budgetary items. And in fact, I've asked the city manager that we're going to do a dialogue series in 18 that we want to do Finance 101, something where we're going to... Not that the budget isn't transparent, but people... They don't want to look at a big binder like we have to look at. But try to give an overview to your point of where all this money is and how is it allocated, why is it allocated this way, what's the pros of doing it, if we took it away, what's the con. I think the residents need to understand that so that when they do comment or have an opinion, they'll have a little bit more knowledge. Okay, let's talk about it on the master plan just for a little bit and then kind of wrap this up. We talk about the uh, master plan. We have the Saris Regis project. And as we know right now, the Saris Regis project uh, was zoned for commercial and retail. Uh, and now um, I, I'm assuming, and, and Gary, you're going to have to clarify it for me, that, that the uh, Saris Regis new proposal, uh, which is not necessarily completely firm, has that been brought to the Planning Commission first? I know that they're asking to change the zoning uh, so that they can have a mixed-use situation of housing. Um, um, and and the council has been in the process of working with Sarah Regis and having meetings with them. Um, and some of the buzzwords that are going around is um, workforce housing, uh, not affordable housing. Maybe you can... Uh, Clarify what's going on. What's going on here? Because there's some things that people are not aware of what's really happening. So, during the gatekeeper process, as I talked about in the beginning of our, our podcast, uh, Sarah we just came to us about a year and a half ago or so, um, floating an idea of removing the commercial building and putting in homes for sale. In the master plan at that site, it's already been zoned and cleared for 17 for sale homes. So that, that, that's a given that that was there. The commercial building, parking structure, all of that. They came to us and said, we think that the market isn't necessarily right for commercial, so we would like to build another 58 homes, or to a total of 58 homes. I don't have it in front of me the exact numbers, but more for sale homes. Remove the commercial. A uh, lot of uproar from, from some businesses that are in that area that felt that they had bought or paid for a lease on the idea that there would be this commercial building. Um, anyway, they came to us, and again, at council, my opinion to Saris Regis at the time was, hey, the residents are telling you no more housing right now. We need, to, we need to really understand the impact of what's being constructed before we can, before I can say, let's go for more. And to this day, I still believe is let's evaluate what all the impacts are, what is being constructed before we put any more shovels in the ground to make sure. And that's being done, by the way. So Sears Regis came back to us uh, in a closed session, which is allowed to discuss real property. Okay, And all that was discussed is, is there interest to bring it to the public 
a term sheet. No decision can be made in closed session. That meeting or two later from that time, it was presented in an open forum. Here's the term sheet that Sarah's Regis would like. Is there interest for staff to sit down with Sarah's Regis and discuss it? We voted 5-0 to say it doesn't hurt to have any discussion because we believe that within this, there were some compromises. For me, there was some win-win. They went away. It's now going through the process of going to the Planning Commission. Planning Commission is going to look at and evaluate all the EIR report, the traffic, the water, the fire, police, all of those things. They're going to make a recommendation at some time to council, we assume, have no idea, that says we either think it's a good project and we, you should rezone it, or we think it's a horrible project and do what you want with it. Sure. When do you think this is going to happen? Is it a middle, middle we know of next the year? Work, we know the wheels are in motion. I, I, so I don't know if it's going to be, we're going to see it in three months, four months. I don't know. It could be a month. I, I think a lot's just going to be how much detail is the Planning Commission going to go through with Sarah's Regis uh, to get all of this I's dotted and T's crossed. I don't know if there's an urgency other than the development agreement expires, I believe, sometime in 19 or 20. There, You know, when you take out, as you would know, a development agreement, you have so many years to develop or you have to go back to square one. So I think there's a little bit of pressure on them to get something going. Um, what the outcome of it will be, um, I, I have no opinion because right now there's nothing in front of us to talk about. Okay, let's let's assume that something is going to be proposed. Do you think that that's going to impact those businesses? Um, you know, your Penelope's, your Sandwich Monkey, the salon. Um, a few people that were running for council a couple of years ago uh, were trying to promote uh, that we will make sure that the Sarah Regis project is not rezoned, that we will have our commercial use over there, and that that commercial use will go ahead and help the small businesses. So, is there a way that um, that the communication is are are the currently the council or the planning commission communicating with the small businesses to help them out? Or uh, so one of the one of the items that all of us brought up when the term sheet was presented to us to Sarah's Regis through staff, etc., was take care of those businesses some way. If you're if 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 Part of your thing is to go all homes, for sale homes, forget the fact that they want to give us some property. You need to make right on those businesses that are there. Some way, somehow, because it, I can tell you, just from the tenor that I gathered, a lot of, probably the five of us would be very hesitant if, they, if there wasn't some communication, whether it's a financial obligation, whatever, something needs to happen between Sarah's Regis and those businesses. And I firmly believe the dialogue has been taking place. He told us that, um, that night, Sarah's Regis representative indicated that there is dialogue. I don't know if they're close. I don't know if they're far away. But I do believe dialogue is taking place. And hopefully by the time, if it ever comes to staff or to us, that those issues, whether it's at plan or not, have been ironed out to the satisfactory level of the, the businesses and Sarah's Regis. Okay, let's say this: the, uh, the, the Sarah's Regis is successful in getting their project approved from the Planning Commission and the City Council. Um, part of the tenor of, of the agreement uh, is to build workforce housing. Um, it's my understanding of just listening to what's happening. The workforce housing is not affordable housing, but it's called workforce housing. Affordable housing obviously is distinguished by an income. 
uh, workforce housing is your workforce. So can you kind of give us your interpretation of what workforce housing would mean? Um, obviously, you sit on the council, um, and let's just say the Regis is successful. Who would be these people? I know the buzzwords have been first responders. Who would be the workforce housing that would have an opportunity to, to purchase? So staff is working right now on being a little more clear on how we're going to identify these workforce housing or the, the, the people that would have the opportunity to live here. Council, I know that we brought up the idea of first responders such as the fire police. Those would be the first two that I think the tenor of the council would look to those individuals to be in that type of uh, workforce housing, if you want to call it. I think it should be, we should open it up to teachers. Um, I think there's, teachers are underpaid. Um, it's not fair they're underpaid. They're underpaid in the sense that it's hard for them to live in the community where they teach. And I know a lot of teachers are coming from all over, and I don't know if that's necessarily a great you know, for them in personality when they get to work, whatever. But that's separate. But I would like to see teachers as part of that. I think there's some challenges, no matter if it's fire police or teachers, because we got to make sure what's the what's the criteria, and who gets go in there gets to go in there first. So oh. I think there's a lot of discussion that staff is going to have to have bring to us if it ever gets to there. That okay. Well, we're also in another unique situation here, too. We're fortunate enough to have three fire departments that are merged uh, together. Um, so I, I could see a situation... Well, we share now. The three fire departments yeah. work in unison together with one fire chief, and we share battalion chiefs. And so there's a lot of shared services right now. We're looking and just approved to go to the next level to do a JPA for the fire service. So it would all be one fire. It wouldn't matter... As long as a fire truck or a paramedic shows up at your home, it doesn't matter what what city they're from on the door. Well, no, I no, I appreciate that clarification. I guess I was more going that they would be first responders. So you would even have technically um, somebody that uh, lives in Belmont or lives in San Mateo as a firefighter in this. In so that so you bring up one of the challenges we have. If it ever comes to us, that's some of the concern is what that criteria, as I mentioned, what. What's the criteria if it's a first responder fire? Is it a firefighter that works out of the Foster City firehouse? If so, what if that person got transferred to Belmont? You know, so there, there, there's a lot of open-ended well, you know, issues I, that, are, that we're not, I'm not ready to go through because we, we haven't got to that. But in our initial discussions and, and with staff, they're... they're they're doing all the well, behind-the-scenes work to get us the right information. I'm excited as a teacher myself to hear you bring up teachers because I've been teaching in the Sequoia School District for about eight years. Um, the buzzwords we've been all using for the last 20 or 30 years is, is that we all want to keep the police and fire in our towns. And that makes sense. It makes sense to all of us. But the reality is they haven't lived in our towns, um, and you can't blame them, um, even probably a good portion of our city staff don't live in the city of Foster City. So, but again, I appreciate your... But I'm not sure. I think the fire is a unique... Um, they're unique creatures in the sense that they're they're on so many days and they're off so many days. And so if they're off, let's say, three days, just for argument's sake, 
a lot of them have lived with their families where they not necessarily can afford, but they can buy more. So if they're going to spend a fair amount of time off work, they want to live out of here. A lot of them live up uh, El Dorado Hills, you know, out areas where they can buy more. So I'm not, we're not necessarily sure that it, it is going to get any firefighters that are going to put in an application, but we're not even there yet. We're not, we haven't really defined would it be a, a, somebody that's not married that would want? I, I think there's a lot of issues. I think the idea that we're trying to protect our infrastructure if there's a major disaster. But I, but more importantly, Patrick, I think teachers should be part of the mix. I, I think if there's an opportunity, it's only 22 units, but if we can help some teachers out, if we can help somebody, it does. it could help traffic. Even if it's 22, every little car off the road makes a difference. I think if they're close to where they work is a benefit. The people that live in our that work in our city that don't live here, some of it is choice. Not everybody. I work in San Francisco. I live in Foster City. Could I live in San Francisco if I wanted to? But I think you choose to live where you live and you work where you work. You go where the jobs are and you make the best of it. Um, but I, I'm not. I, I'm not in a position right now to say that workforce housing should be employees of City Hall, if we want to use it that way. I think right now, to me, if it ever came to me, I would like to see police, fire police teachers. I'd like to see that be where we go towards. And if there's not enough of those to want to fill it, then I think we have to really examine, is this the right project to do? Now, uh, Gary, how many units are we talking about if this um, if this plan is approved that the city would be having workforce housing? And it's my understanding that the developer would build it uh, and then deed it over to the city? So it's 22 units is what is what the workforce housing would be. Um, they would, they would, they own the land. They would turn the land over to us. There's a three or four million dollar value of the land. The land becomes foster cities. They build it, construct it, everything ready to be occupied. Um, and then the city then would take the keys and then we would control who lives there. We could control the price that, is charged for rent, which I think there's some advantages to that because there's flexibility. If a developer has it, they're going to try to get, remember, unless it's below market or, or whatever, they're going to try to get a certain level. Um, and below market or uh, affordable housing is different in every city because cost of living. Um, so I think the way we're going about this, if it comes to us, has some, uh, some excitement to it. Okay, we're going to pause here. And we're going to continue part two of the Gary Pollard exclusive interview on the next episode of Podcast by the Bay. We do want to thank Gary Pollard for his transparency and his forthrightness in interviewing with us. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to another Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com slash podcast by the bay. And in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. Liberty Realty. 
You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.